Amen. All right, church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 2, good to see you, good to be back. Thank you so much for letting me have a week off to um, go and fish. I went fishing. Okay, so thanks for letting me go do that. Uh, I want to thank Jonathan for uh, stepping in as a 24-year-old and telling you what it's like to get old. Um, <laughs> I'd like to thank him for that. Uh, no, he did a great job. Jonathan is growing, and uh, it's a pleasure to watch how God has grown him in the last three years that he's been here and, and how he's preparing him to be a vessel for ministry. And so you are blessed, church, to have Jonathan and, uh, and Katie and, and the staff here as they, uh, as they serve. Um, so graduates, I missed you last week, but congratulations if you're graduating. We are proud of you. We're excited to see what God wants to do with your life as you enter adulthood and uh, as you actually take on responsibility for yourself. That's what we're excited about. And uh, just a few more things. Next week uh, will be an exciting Sunday. We're going to highlight our mission partnership in Cincinnati. I've already mentioned that to you before, how we're shifting some of our, our emphasis and missions towards a sin city. And it's going to be in Cincinnati where we can send teams and where we can provide prayer support and help and uh, come alongside a church planner. And so we will be uh, announcing who that is next week. So you want to be here for that. And also men, next week there's going to be a men's meeting. So uh, mark that on your calendar. But today is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a product of a single parent home. I was raised by a mom who worked overtime and provided all the things that, that I needed. And so I have such a high appreciation for godly moms and uh, what they mean to, to the household. Charles Spurgeon once said, I cannot tell you how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother. Anybody feel the same way? If it hadn't been for my mom praying while I was that rebellious teenager, I would not be here today. And so I owe a lot to my mom's prayers. Uh, Charles Wesley said, I learned more about God from my mother than from all the theologians in England. I don't know if she was a theologian or if she just taught him life lessons and, uh, and, and put the fear of God in him. Maybe that's what she did. Uh, maybe, maybe your mom taught you some lessons. Maybe she taught you to pray. You better pray that comes out of the carpet, right? You better pray. You better pray that comes out of the carpet. Maybe she taught you about time travel. <laughs> Maybe she's going to say, if you don't straighten up, I'll knock you in the next week, right? <laughs> Maybe she taught you about irony. You keep crying. I'll give you something to cry about. Maybe she taught you about anticipation. Oh, you wait till your dad gets home. And maybe your mom taught you about justice. One day, you're going to have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. And that happens, praise the Lord. So, um, so today, as we get into God's Word, we're going to talk about justice, but it's not mom's justice, it's God's justice, and He is a just God who will one day judge both, the, uh, both of us, the, the Jew and the Gentile. And as we've been in Romans chapter 1, we've seen that chapter 1, it might have taken us four weeks, but we got through it. We saw that Romans chapter 1 was about Paul laying out his case that we are all suppressing the truth, that we see that there is idolatry and there is immorality, and we are suppressing the truth, and we see how it's played out throughout humanity. And so we can look at the world and be like, oh, it is, it is depraved, it is, it is sick, it is headed in a direction we don't want to go. And then you turn the page to chapter 2, and Paul, in his nice, kind little way, says, oh, but religious person, you're in this too, okay? So don't, don't start judging the, the wicked there because there are things in your heart that, that should not be there. And so he's going he's gonna to basically hold up a mirror. And when he holds up the mirror to the religious person, we get to look into the mirror and we get to ask what the queen and Snow White said, right? Magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And so what the queen was doing was she was looking for validation based on comparison. 
And a lot of times, the religious person is looking for validation based on comparison. We cannot look for religious validation by moral comparison. And that's what a lot of what religion does. It says, look, I'm better than this person. I'm doing pretty good. And so we begin to judge other people, but what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to look into the mirror and to see how we are compared to the righteousness of Christ. Every single one of us. And as we look into that mirror, we see how far we have all fallen. Jesus, when he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, he said this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How easy it is for the religious person to notice the speck in someone else's eye, but not take notice of the log that is in our own eye. And the reason is because we look at the mirror and we look for validation based on moral comparison. And what we are doing, oh, it's just not as bad as what they're doing. And we find ourselves condemning others, as Tim Keller says, while excusing ourselves. And this allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. When we validate ourselves by comparison, we get to hold on to that self-righteousness. Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all the right things. I was raised in a Christian home, and I had a godly mom who drug me to church, right? She would, she would tell me, I'll take you to get a steak after church if you will go to church with me. Praise God for my mom, right? Praise God for steaks, right? If you're a vegetarian, praise God for more steaks for me, right? Amen. Amen. And so we have this tendency to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm pretty good. And what Paul's about to do in Romans chapter 2 is say, you're without excuse. Because the things that you're judging in the lives of others are the very same things that you're doing. So if you have your Bibles, if you feel uplifted, if you feel encouraged, let me help you not feel that way in Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, his ki his, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who practice, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be a wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it was inspired by your Holy Spirit, that it was written down by faithful men, and that we have it today and we can hold it in our hands. We would ask God that through your word you would mold us and shape us, and by your spirit you would speak to us and lead us into righteousness, lead us into faith, lead us in a way of understanding. God, that you would do a work in our hearts that we are incapable of doing ourselves. Father, I pray that we would find hope in Christ alone today. In your name we pray, amen. First thing I want you to see is the judgment of God and the hypocrisy of man. The judgment of God and the hypocrisy of man. Verse 1, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. This is Paul's argument, that those who are religious, who are looking at the people in chapter 1 and pointing their finger at them, are guilty of the same thing, and yet they are covering it with a veneer of religion. Oh, you know how to follow all the rules, but you're actually guilty of doing the exact same thing. You see, hypocrisy, there are two forms of hypocrisy that they play out in a, in a religious person. That of professing a belief in something that, and then acting in a manner contrary to that belief. That's the one we're familiar with. And that of looking down on others when we ourselves are flawed. That is the comparison part that takes place. And scripture is very clear about the hypocrisy of man when it comes to the judgment of God. Isaiah said this in, in uh, 29, 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Jesus would quote this verse in Matthew chapter 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is an interesting thought that Jesus would refer back to Isaiah and he would say, listen, these religious people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Oh, they know how to worship and they know how to go through all the rules and follow all the regulations, but their hearts aren't really in it. In fact, all the things they're doing are vanity. It's actually for themselves. And what they're doing is they're teaching the doctrines as the commandments of men. So they're adding layer by layer of layer of what it means to be a good believer in God by all the things you do and don't do. And so these becomes the things that we focus in on. And so as long as I'm doing all of these things that I've been told to focus in on, it doesn't matter where my heart is because I am better than the person that's sitting over here. And all of a sudden it's like we walk into a worship service and we say, I just like to thank God I'm not like so-and-so. And this is what Jesus is condemning to the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, 37. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Oh, we can put on a good show because we know all the rules that we're supposed to follow. We know the, the taboos, the do's and the don'ts of religion. And yet, we can often walk into worship and be dead on the inside, full of all uncleanliness, because our hearts are far from him. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. This idea of passing judgment means to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. Wow. What a harsh way to look at people. 
to think that they are worthy of God's judgment, but yet I'm not. This is hypocrisy. Paul here is addressing and condemning the person who has an external morality but is inwardly corrupt. Religious people have the same sins as the wicked people, but they have different manifestations because we've been able to cover them with religion. I remember back just a few verses. If you, if you turn back with me to Romans 1, 29 and 30, he addresses these issues, and these are not so much actions as they are attitudes. And he's revealing that though this would be the unsaved Gentile, if, if you peel back the layer, you'll see that these are the same attitudes that religious people carry with them as well because hypocrisy happens in our hearts. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now think about that. If it's not just your action, but if it's your attitude, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are attitudes before their ever actions. And the religious people have the same attitudes a lot of times because of the hypocrisy in our hearts. This is why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount again would say this, exposing the attitude behind the action. Matthew 5, 21 through 24. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The action of murder has the attitude of hatred. And it's almost like Jesus would say, before you come and worship, before you come and go through the motions that you know are the motions, before you stand up and sing and do all the things that you do, why don't you take an evaluation of your heart towards others? Do you know if someone has something against you because of something that was said or done throughout the week or the month? Take an inventory of the words that you have spoken against someone, maybe the slander or the gossip that took place before you ever come in and offer your gift of worship. Oh, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. Hypocrisy happens in the heart. This is what James would say in James 3, 9 through 10. It's talking about the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in, his, in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It ought not to be so that we can curse people throughout the week and praise God on the weekend. Oh, hypocrisy of the heart. Paul is revealing this as we get into chapter 2. Listen, you're pointing fingers at people in chapter 1. Yeah, the world, it's sick. It's demented. It's going the wrong direction. But at least I'm good. Oh, you who cast judgment, you do the same things. Hypocrisy happens in the heart. He goes on in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery action. But I say to you, 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart attitude. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What a strong attack on the flesh that Jesus recommends. As I was studying this week and as we were doing our Wednesday night men's and women's studies, we're in the, the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, and there's a quote in there, and the guys love this quote. And the reason the guys love this quote is because there's this phrase in it, and it's by Thomas Boston. They that would keep themselves pure must have their bodies in subjection, and that may require, in some cases, a holy violence. Holy violence. That's a man, that's a man line right there. There's some holy violence. You know what? Sometimes there needs to be a holy violence. Sometimes we do need to go to war against the flesh and against the heart that is far from God and not be satisfied with emotions that we found ourselves in comparing ourselves to others. Magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? At least I'm better than that joker, right? We don't need to have that. We need to have a holy violence. We need to adopt a holy violence against the hypocritical hidden sins of our heart before we ever have a holy indignation against the sins of others. As we walk into worship, we should take an inventory of our life and say, Father, is there anything in me that you find grievous right now? Has my heart wandered this week? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have I wandered from you this week? We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We know. I love this. We know. We know that he's a judge, right? We know that he's holy. We know that he's righteous. We know that he's going to judge rightly. How do we know this? Because we judge. We judge, and we judge all the time, and we do it imperfectly. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, they shouldn't do that. Oh, you should do that. We judge all the time, and we know that there's going to be a judge who judge rightly because we judge imperfectly, but he will judge perfectly. If we know what is right and wrong from a sinful standpoint, we can't imagine what he knows from a holy standpoint. In fact, our very engagement in condemning other things is proof that we know that those things are wrong. And yet we can hide them with a religious veneer. We can hide them in secret. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, verse 4, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Presume on the riches. What a remarkable thought. The word that means to have a low estimate of something. It just doesn't really matter that much. It just kind of gets pushed to the side. It's not in the forefront of my thinking. It's kind of off to the side. Yeah, I know it's there. That's great. I'll come back to it. Basically, it's living in a way that tramples underfoot the grace of God for the gratification of the flesh. God's being patient with me, and I'm going to see how much rope he's going to give me before I hang myself. Are you presuming on the riches of God? So here's the question that Paul would ask the religious person who compares themselves to sinners and continues to live in sin with an unrepentant pattern of life. Here's the question. 
Do you have such a low appreciation for God's rich kindness and patience with you that you think you can keep on sinning and do what you want to do simply because you think you're better than the other guy? Wow. Happy Mother's Day, right? Oh, yeah. Do you presume on the riches of God or has it led you to repentance? And I want you to understand this. Repentance isn't, I need to do better. That's religion. Religion is, I need to do better. Repentance is, I need a change produced in me because there is something in my heart that is far from God, no matter how good my actions are. And I need the hypocrisy of the heart to be changed. I need to be regenerated. I need a new heart placed in me. I need God to do something in me that I'm incapable of doing myself so that I would produce a fruit of repentance in my life, not just motions and actions of religion. In John 3, 7 through 9, John the Baptist said this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, he says to the religious people, don't, don't start presuming on the riches of God. Don't start thinking, oh, I've got such a great heritage. I was raised in a Christian home. I had a godly mother who prayed for me. She brought me to church and paid me off with stakes. I mean, I had such a great upbringing. I was raised in the Bible Belt. I can throw a rock and hit three churches at the same time. I mean, I was really blessed. Don't begin to presume on those things, but take account of the fruit that is in your life that is not just actions of religion, but is God producing a different attitude in your life. You see, it's not just our life that is on trial before God. It's also our heart. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows our hearts. I'm reminded of one of the most beautiful stories in all the Gospels. The interaction with Jesus and a sinful woman is remarkable. John 8, 3 through 11. The scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who were getting their validation by comparison, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What a beautiful story. But it's a remarkable thought if you look at it from the religious person's standpoint. All of the religious people walked away recognizing that they were sinful, but not one of them repented. We have such a knack of knowing that there's sin in our life and just trying to do better. 
without ever repenting. And walking away in recognition of sin isn't the same as repenting of sin. And so today, here's the, here's the danger we all face, that we can read God's word, we can be convicted by God's word, and we can recognize that there's sins in our lives and there's things that need to change. And instead of repenting, we just recognize it and say, you know what? You're right, pastor, I need to do better. That's religion. We need repentance. Repentance is not just a habit change. It's a heart change. And if your heart doesn't change, your habits will never change. Oftentimes we have remorse and we have regret and we recognize sin and we say, I'm going to do better and then our habits never change. It could be that we never truly repented. We never asked him to do a regeneration of our heart. Second thing we see is the judgment of God and the hard-heartedness of man. Picking up verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be a wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, your unrepentance. Now we're all familiar, many of us are familiar with Martin Luther as he started the Protestant Reformation, how he went and how he nailed his thesis to the door at the castle church in Wittenberg. And on that was written this, when our Lord Jesus said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. That we are to be a people who repent. Not just one time, but we are continually repenting, knowing that our hearts stray from the Lord. I like how Tim Keller puts it. It is important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. In religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. This means that religious repentance is A, selfish, B, self-righteous, and C, bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. I hope you understand this. I cannot tell you how many times I've repented from a religious standpoint. I cannot tell you how many times out of guilt and fear of consequences, I've repented and said, God, please don't be mad at me. Please don't let this consequence ruin my life. Please get me out of this situation. And when I look back at it and I think about the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance, I see that I'm using God for my own selfish, my own selfish reasons and gain. But genuine gospel repentance is saying, remind me of the union we have. Remind me of the relationship that we have. Remind me of the regenerate heart that you've placed within me, how you've changed me from the inside out so that I can flee from these desires and I can cling to you in a relationship. 
I am more about your glory than my satisfaction at this moment. That is genuine gospel-filled repentance. Not that I want God to be on my good side, but I am grieved. I am grieved that I would still have sins in my life that draw me away from him. Not that I can go through the motions and, and act like I have it all together, but I know where my heart is. Church, do you know where your heart is today? John West, no, George Whitfield, excuse me, in 1738, wrote a letter to a friend, and he said there's three steps to genuine repentance. He said, number one, you have to repent in deep humility. You can't have a hard heart. You can't think, I'm still good. There has to be a humility that takes place where you ask, have I sinned? And not that I just recognize my sin, not that I just regret my sin, but I, I'm wrecked by that sin. Repent with a burning love for God and man. Have I presumed on the riches of his kindness? Have I continued to see how much rope he would give me? And have I spoken or thought unkindly or judged anyone this week so that I would feel better about myself? And then thirdly, repent in a God-motivated zeal for God's glory. Am I motivated by God's glory or am I motivated by other people's approval? Am I motivated by comfort and pleasure? Is it a God-centered repentance? It reminds me of the rich young ruler. Another great story in the Gospels, Mark 10, 17 through 22 and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. There's the Mother's Day part of the message. Verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. A lot of times in our Western mindset, we make this about money. We make this about what we must do. That's not the purpose of this story. In fact, him being a rich young ruler and having kept all these commandments means that he was probably seen as one of the most blessed people in all of the town. But he knew there was something missing. There's got to be something else I can do. And so Jesus exposes the fact that you can never do enough. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done on your behalf. It's to say, I give all of my life to him. And I'll follow hard after him. Some of the scariest verses in all of the Gospels, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, many, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The reason these are scary is because some people were so confused by religion 
that they have put their faith in what they do for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for them. And what a terrible thought to have spent your whole life, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, to find out him say, I never had your heart. I never had it. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace and faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by works. Good works will never earn salvation. They are an expression of salvation. It is what God produces in your life when you have a fruit of repentance. Remember, repentance is not a habit change. It's a heart change. And if your heart doesn't change, your habits will never change. Finally, the judgment of God and the hidden secrets of men. Verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be judged. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus what Paul is doing here is he has lumped us into two categories he said there are those who have sinned under the law the Jews those who have been given the law of God and those who have sinned without being under the law the Gentiles and even the Gentiles know that there's a right and wrong because they live out as if there is some moral code that has been written on their heart they know that there is a right and there is a wrong and so they're a judgment to themselves like I said, one day we, we judge now imperfectly, but one day he will judge perfectly, so we know that there will be a judge. And what Paul is saying is, whether you are chapter 1 or chapter 2, whether you're not religious or you are religious, you're without excuse. Nobody, whether Jew or Gentile, will be shown to be righteous at the judgment based on their own good works. Only in Christ, by grace and through faith, will anyone be declared righteous and given eternal life. As we close, I want to close with Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32 is another famous story in the Gospels. And I'm going to ask you today, how will you respond? Because you will respond one of these ways. You'll respond in repentance. You'll respond with recognition of sin in your life. You'll respond with resistance to God's truth or you'll respond with going through the motions of religious self-righteousness. These are the options. Luke 15, 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he went 
longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. How will you respond today? Repentance? Coming to your senses? You know, I can go back to the Father's house and he will run and meet me. He will wrap his loving arms around me. He will bring me into the house because I was dead and now I'm alive. Recognition. I know I've got sin in my life, but I'm just gonna sit here a little bit longer. Resistance, like the older brother. I'm not going in. I've been, I've been doing the right thing this whole time. Religious self-righteousness. You know, religious people have an impeccable ability to do all the right things, follow all the right rules, never run off in rebellion, but secretly they are far from genuine fellowship with the Father because they're just too busy judging their life and actions by those of others. Let's pray. Father, as we respond today to your word, we thank you that you're a loving Father, longing for us to come home longing for us to be part of the fellowship, longing for us to celebrate death to life through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, today there are many here who know that there's sin in their life. Father, I pray that by the conviction of your Holy Spirit and the conviction of your word, you would draw them to repentance, genuine gospel repentance. Father, you would lead us today to honor and glorify you, to not just follow the motions and the commandments taught by men. Father, we thank you that one day we will stand before you and it will not be anything that we have done, but it will be the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we stand under, that you have imputed your righteousness to us. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. May our lives respond in worship with hearts 
that are not far from you. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?